gonna be a big day, I can just kind of tell, because we're gonna talk directly about worry, anxieties, um, depressions. Does that sound like fun so far? Are we in a good, good spot? All right. Most of us deal with these kinds of things, these anxieties of life, the heaviness of worry, and, and we're talking about focus this series. It's a six-week series on focus. And Jesus today in the Sermon on the Mount is saying, hey, listen, if you are a worrier, I got a few things for you to pay attention to. So we are going to see some cool things done today. For those of us who are dealing with the stresses of life, the anxieties of life, the worries of life, and I'm talking about the stuff that is internally yours that only you know about, the stuff in your family, the stuff in your workplace, the stuff even globally. If you're carrying these stresses, anxieties, and worries, today should be a big day for you. Because Jesus says this about focus. He says, if our focus is good, everything's good. If our focus is bad, everything's bad. So this is serious stuff, right? Last week we talked about in the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus says, when your eye is good, your whole body is filled with light. When your eye is bad, your whole body is filled with darkness. And he's talking here about focus. If we're focused on the good, our life is full of light. And so we're talking about what is this good focus Jesus has for us. Now, this idea of focus is a big deal because it determines the course of life. What we focus on determines the course of our entire life. Let me give you a little example of this. Um, back in ancient times, they didn't have uh, modern navigation devices. So imagine you're on the open seas at night. To me, that is a very scary thing. And you are trying to navigate where you're going. How could you possibly know where you're going in the open seas? What's the answer? Stars. Which stars you focus on? So if you were navigating, you try to find the North Star, which shouldn't be all that hard. You find the North Star, and then depending on the degrees away from the horizon, you know where you are in terms of latitude. And then you look for Orion's Belt and the far left star on Orion's Belt, and then from there, you will know how far you are in terms of longitude, and you would be able to navigate just by focusing on the stars. What we focus on determines the course of our entire life. But here's the problem with focus. In many respects, it seems as though the things we focus on are entirely out of our control because things just pop into our head. Our, our, our visual focus just kind of happens. Our emotional focus just sort of happens. So are we really in control of our focus? Is our focus in our control or out of control? And here's the answer, and it's a, an absolute scientific fact plus a biblical fact. The answer is yes. Focus is both a little out of control, yet part of it is thoroughly in our control. So how do we navigate focus when some of it seems to be out of our control? Some of it just comes in our head and in our heart. So how do we gain control where we think there is no control and what we focus on? Let's talk about the human brain. How does the human brain focus? Well, first of all, the human brain is an absolute miracle. It is fascinating. This three pounds of jelly in your brain is among the greatest miracles in all of creation. No joke. It is astounding. And some people say, well, yeah, this brain is, is, is powerful like a supercomputer. Well, our brain is almost nothing like a supercomputer. I have in my, um, in my uh, pocket my entire life. This is a five terabyte hard drive. My entire life is on this hard drive. Every sermon I've ever preached is on this hard drive, so you know how important this is to humanity, right? Every song, 25,000 songs that I've downloaded. Um, yes, I have downloaded songs. I know that sounds crazy. Um, every picture is backed up on this hard drive. My entire family life is backed up on this hard drive. It is everything, five terabytes, most of it's used. 
And we might think that's astounding, but it's really kind of dumb. This thing just writes ones and zeros. That's all it does. It just writes ones and zeros, so it's kind of dumb. As amazing as it is for a human being's entire life to be in this little device, it's really kind of dumb just writing ones and zeros. And so um, this morning, I downloaded an image of a $1 bill and put it on this drive. So if I were to say, hey, drive, pull up this $1 bill image, it would come up and look like this, a pretty well perfect $1 bill, right? A hundred years from now, if I plugged this into a computer and pulled up that same drive, the same ones and zeros would appear on the screen as a perfect $1 bill. But it's just pretty dumb, reading and writing in ones and zeros. If I were to ask you, with this incredible miracle of a human brain, to draw a picture of a dollar, this is what you would draw. And we might think, well, your dumb hard drive sure seems a little bit better than my dumb brain. And, and I would understand that because um, there's something fascinating about the human brain. The human brain actually doesn't store anything. Science has come to the realization that the brain doesn't store anything. This thing stores all kinds of stuff. It stores trillions of ones and zeros that regurgitates perfect images and videos and sermons, right? But the human brain stores nothing. There's a lot of discussion about whether you can download the information stored in your, in your human brain. There is no information stored in your human brain. Isn't that kind of weird? And some of you are saying, yes, I'm sitting next to somebody that clearly has no information stored in their human brain. What actually happens is with every stimulus right now, with the, where, wherever you're looking, live and online, you're looking at me, looking at the screen, looking whatever, you know, gazing at the you know, baseball game on your phone, whatever you're doing right now, with every image, with every stimuli, with every smell, with every touch, with every taste, your brain just changes a little bit. Just changes. Doesn't store anything. Just changes. And all of these neurons and all of these connectors and all of these proteins, they just kind of change with every stimuli, giving you the ability to think about a $1 bill and be able to draw a little cartoon sketch that is ridiculous, but gives you sort of an emotional memory, not a data memory, but an emotional memory of what a $1 bill looks like and feels like. And so you can use that information. The brain is truly, truly remarkable. There are 86 billion neurons in your head with 100 trillion interconnections. And each of those 100 trillion interconnections contains 1,000 different proteins that exist in every connection point, each of those with different strengths. And every time your brain thinks of anything or is stimulated by anything, all those things just tweak, just tweak for your entire life. And here's the thing that's even weirder than that. As your brain just tweaks and shifts, doesn't store anything, but just tweaks and shifts, 95% of its work happens without you. (laughs) Your consciousness is 5% of your brain's activity. The things you overtly think about are only 5% of your brain's activity. The other 95% of your brain's activity, just tweaking and tweaking and tweaking constantly, happens without your knowledge. It just happens. So if I were to throw you this hard drive, did you have to think about that? You did not have to think about that. You knew, well, maybe you did, but you didn't have to think about it. Your brain just said, some knucklehead's tossing you something, get ready. And your hands immediately went up. You didn't have to think about it. You didn't have to ponder, why is this knucklehead throwing a hard drive at my face? I better raise my hands right now. I better put my hands at this angle. I better watch for the trajectory of this thing. Our consciousness does not have to think about any of it. But the 95% of our brain that just works on its own without us, immediately, in a split second, your hands were up and you were ready to go. You're clearly an athlete, right? That's just what happens. Driving is 95% subconscious. You don't have to think about it. You just do, right? 
talking, 95% subconscious. Your brain just works. And so what happens as your brain works is it scans, always scanning, scanning, scanning. What is your brain scanning for? Your brain is scanning for threats because your brain is designed to stay alive. Your brain knows to keep this thing alive, it's got to constantly be working and constantly be churning, looking for threats. Are you a threat? Are you a threat? Is this a threat? Because if this brain's going to live and you're going to live, it has to know threats, perceive threats, process threats, and make you react to threats without even thinking about it, right? So here's the good news. As a result of all that, we are wired for worry. We are wired for worry. It's the worry part of our brain that keeps us alive. It's the worry part of our brain that says, you know, you better not cross the street until you look both ways, right? If you didn't worry at all, you'd go, oh, there's probably nothing in the street and you're a goner, right? So worry keeps us alive. It keeps us looking for threats and the brain is processing threats. We are wired for worry. Now, here's how this kind of plays out in weird ways. A couple of nights ago, I woke up at 3.46 a.m. And you know that feeling your eyes are open and you think, it feels too early. <laughs> you look at your clock with this hopeful thing. Is it, I pray it is five something, and, but no, it's three something. That means it's over. I mean, that's just what it means. I wake up at 3.46 a.m., look over at the clock, and there's this weird, nagging, negative thought that just appeared. The 95% of my brain that's just churning without me somehow in its subconsciousness said, Treadway, you're gonna worry about this thing at 3.46 a.m., and honestly, it's not even a big deal. It's not even a big worry. If I told you what it was, I won't because it's totally embarrassing. It's not even, it wasn't even a thing, not even a threat. But at 346, sure felt like a threat. And your brain's saying, worry, worry, worry. This is a threat, threat, threat. And so I'm not sleeping, not sleeping, not sleeping. And so um, I'm battling this, right? So how can my brain respond when it's firing off subconscious worry? Well, I'm a pretty good sleeper, don't mean to brag, but I'm a pretty good sleeper most nights, so I don't have a pattern of waking up in the middle of the night, but I thought, you know what? I've seen the cartoons, I'm just gonna count. So I started counting really slow, really slow. Got to 38 and I'm lights out, right? So that was just a little practice that as the subconscious worry fires in, maybe there's a way to bury that subconscious worry with a conscious activity. And, and that is essentially what Jesus is talking about here because he's referring to these people 2,000 years ago who had a lot to worry about. These people were poor, they were peasants, they were invaded by the Roman Empire, they were essentially slaves of the Roman Empire, they were taxed to poverty, they had no hope for the future, they were um, uh, victims of violence. So these people had a lot, a lot to worry about. And so Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount tells them what to do with the worry. So what do we do with the worry? Our brains are wired for worry. 95% of this churning activity happens without our consciousness and it's looking for problems and pouring those problems into our thoughts and into our emotions. And so most of us live with stresses and anxieties and worries that just happen through the day because that's what our brain does. So Jesus says, what are you gonna do with that worry? And he says this in Matthew 6, 24. He says to a worrying audience, no one can serve two masters. No one can serve two masters. Now, as I've heard that passage preached over and over again, it's usually sort of in a threatening tone. It's like, okay, well, no one can serve two masters. You either serve one or the other. You either serve God or money. Which is it, right? And that's kind of how this passage is presented. But that's not at all what Jesus is talking about. Jesus here is talking about worry. 
What are you gonna put your trust in? Are you gonna put your trust in the things that are the physical things around you? If that's what you're gonna trust in, the physical things around you, which do include money and health and the tangible you know, working of this world, if you're gonna put your trust in the circumstance of this world, get ready for a life full of stress. Then Jesus says, if you're gonna put your trust in God and his goodness and his faithfulness and in relationships, you're gonna have a life that's full of light. So he goes on to say this in the very next verse. So don't worry about everyday life. Get that? Don't worry about everyday life. Whether you have enough food and drink or enough clothes to wear, isn't life more than food and your body more than clothing? Jesus is saying there's two worlds that you could put your trust in. There's two worlds that you can put the foundation of your life on. Is it the things of this world that are temporary, the things of this world that kind of get corrupt and decay and rot, or are you gonna put your life on the foundation of God himself, his goodness, his faithfulness, his grace towards you, and the relationship that he wants to have with you, and the relationships around you, what are you going to choose? You can't serve two masters. If you are going to put your faith in everyday circumstances, get ready for a life of worry. But Jesus says there's an option. Professor Tim Kasser, he studied depressions and anxieties for 30 years, and he came up with this conclusion. He says, the more we believe we can buy and display our way out of sadness and into happiness, the more likely we are to become depressed and anxious. He and other people in his field do realize that there are some chemical imbalances that can contribute to anxiety and depression. But when you look at the arc of Western history, and particularly, in particular American history, the more we focus on buying and selling and marketing and things and stuff and the next thing we're gonna buy and the next car and the next house and the next upgrade and what we're gonna wear and how we're gonna look and what are people gonna think, that increases anxieties and stresses year after year after year. The, the, the American culture is careening headlong into near permanent stress, anxiety, and worry. Why? Because we are more permanently embracing the things of this world. How do I look? How am I perceived? What do people think of me? What am I going to drive? Where am I going to live? How great of a place can I live in? It's just this constant stress that's building because we're placing our faith on the material instead of the relational. It's a big deal. This is called junk values. If we put our faith and trust on the things of this world, the tangible around us that rot and corrupt and are destroyed, that's called junk values. Like junk food messes with your body, junk values mess with your soul. They mess with your emotions. So Jesus says, we're gonna get this thing squared away. And he uses several illustrations. He's trying to calm everybody down, right? Because they're worried about this life and here and now and the things around them. Jesus is trying to calm them down. So he says, hey, listen, Look at the birds of the air. Look at the lilies of the field. Look at the wildflowers, right? God's taking care of his creation. He will take care of you. Relax. Relax a little. He says in verse 26, look at the birds. They don't plant or harvest or store food in barns. For your heavenly Father feeds them. And aren't you more valuable than them? Put that in your brain. Aren't you more valuable than the birds? Can all your worries add a single moment to your life? There's two things there Jesus focuses on. One is he encourages us to rest in knowing you are treasured by God. 
What does he say? He says, listen, the birds of the field, they're fine. They're taken care of. They're, they're fantastic. They're not worried about anything, right? But God values you more than them, which means we are the most valued treasure of God. That's what he's saying here in the Sermon on the Mount. And that should cause us to worry a little bit less because God's got us. He doesn't promise everything's going to work the way we want, but whether things go for good or things go for bad, God's just got us and he's with us and he'll take care of us. Rest in knowing you are treasured by God. You are God's treasure. Now, a lot of times in, in church life with church brains, we think, well, God is the most valuable thing and, and we need to most value and most treasure God. And I'm not going to argue with that. But if we most value and most treasure God, what we learn from Jesus is he looks down at us and he says, you are the most valued and you are the most treasured by me. And our religious brains kick in and they say, well, well, if I'm good, God will treasure me. If I'm religious, God will treasure me. And God says, no, I just treasure you. Just believe it. Well, if I stop doing these bad things and start doing these good things, God, then you'll treasure me, right? I have to do my part to get you to treasure me. And God says, no, you don't have to do anything. I just treasure you. I value you more than anything else in creation. God values you more than he values the cosmos. He values you more than he values the planet. He values you more than he values the animals. He values you more than he values all of the cosmos. He values you. He treasures you right where you're at with all you've done and all you will do, with all your good and with all your bad. He simply treasures you. And that should give us some peace. Even when things don't work our way, it should give us some peace and, and worry should start to fade just a little bit because we know that God has got us, values us, treasures us. I love Psalm 139. It's a very famous passage. We use it quite often around here. The psalmist says, how precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I were to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. And the psalmist who's going through it right here, He's going through struggle, just rests in the fact that God's attention is always towards him. God's attention is always towards you. His thoughts towards you are eternal and always good. He is not angry with you. He's not disappointed with you. He certainly wants you to live a life of being loved by him and loving the world around you for sure. That's what he wants from you. But he wants you to know above all else, you are a treasure to him. Jesus says that to try to calm our worries, to try to calm our stress. And then he says this sentence that is almost um, eye-rolling. He says, you know what? Worries don't add a single moment to your life. Now, if you say that to somebody prone to worry, they get kind of mad. <laughs> so if somebody worries and you say to them, hey, you know, that doesn't really accomplish anything, they're going to get really upset with you because they kind of know that. Like, I know, I know, I know. I'm stressed. I'm worried about what? I don't even have any idea. I'm stressed. I'm worried about things in the future that I don't even know are going to happen. And it doesn't do any good. Worry almost always does only harm, but worriers know that, right? So Jesus kind of pairs these two thoughts up. If you are a worrier, if you carry stress, know God treasures you. And because he treasures you, he don't, doesn't want you to carry the burdens of worry and stress and anxiety. He doesn't want you to carry it. Worry is mostly useless. And rest in that. Rest in knowing that worry is mostly useless. Now, when I say worry is mostly useless, it means there is some usefulness in worry, right? Um, we were driving to San Diego a couple of days ago, driving down the freeway, super speed limit. This motorcycle comes flying by, had to have been doing at least 100, I'm thinking 100 plus for sure, just flying down the freeway, probably 120 miles an hour on a motorcycle. 
And I'm thinking to myself, dude, you probably should worry a little bit. (laughs) You don't have quite enough worry. I'll be fine. Unload this motorcycle on a freeway doing 120 miles an hour. You should probably worry a little bit because you're not going to last very long, right? So worry has some usefulness. But then on the way back from San Diego, we're driving super speed limit. And there's a person on the freeway driving 45 miles an hour. You should probably worry a little less, right? So, you know, if you don't worry at all, you're going to be in trouble, right? You're going to hurt yourself or some other people. If you worry too much, you're going to be paralyzed. So there's this kind of sweet spot, right? There's a sweet spot of of saying, yes, if you care about yourself or you care about others, you're probably going to worry, and that's probably okay. If you're a human being with a human brain, you're wired for worry because it needs to keep you alive, and that's okay. But we don't want to be consumed by worry. We don't want to be paralyzed by worry, and that's what Jesus is talking about here, right? Don't be mastered by worries, but instead, master your worries. Master your worries. How can we do that? Because a lot of you who are worriers, a lot of you who are carrying stresses right now, you might be saying to yourself, this sounds impossible. I can't master my worries. If 95% of my brain is, doesn't even involve me, it's just this thing that's working, looking for threats, and it just dumps worries and stresses into my consciousness every once in a while, how am I supposed to control 95% of my brain? Well, it is possible. It is possible. And I'm going to tell you, it's not going to be overnight. It takes time. Your brain is like a muscle. It has to be retrained, you know? You don't get these guns without some work, right? You just don't, it, it takes work. I know that was a joke. This takes work. Your brain can be literally rewired. That's not an analogy. Brain science is saying your brain can literally be rewired. And that 5% consciousness, that 5% consciousness can rewire all of it. But it takes a little bit of work. It takes a little bit of work. The Apostle Paul was dealing with his own stresses. Um, He was ministering to both the Jewish people and the Greeks, the non-Jewish people. And they were having a heck of a time getting along. You know, Jewish people have the Old Testament and they're obeying the Old Testament. And the Greeks, the, the Roman Empire, did not have the Old Testament. They did not practice the Old Testament, but they're both trying to follow Jesus. And so here are these two totally different cultures trying to follow Jesus, and they are not getting along with each other. So Paul steps in and Paul says, Hey, listen, you guys can get along. You are at war with each other. I'm going to teach you how to get along. And what that means is Paul stepped in the middle of their conflict. And so everybody started hating Paul, the Jews and the Gentiles. And so in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul is saying, hey, listen, I'm not a big fan of anybody. Let me rephrase that. Everybody's not a big fan of me. And he was dealing with the stress of that. So here's what he says. Get this. I will take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. Did you get that? The Jews are attacking Paul. And his mom is Jewish, so he has all the rights and privileges of a Jew. He was raised a Jew. He's a Jewish leader, and yet all the Jews are hating on him, and he's feeling this hatred towards him. He says, I'm going to take that thought captive. I'm going to make it obedient to Christ. The Greeks, the Romans, they're not liking Paul very much. He is, you know, trying to ask them to respect the Jewish people, and that's not going well. So he's dealing with all of that stress, right? Because he's the full Roman citizen, having all the rights and privileges of Rome. They're hating on him. What does that feel like, right? So he's getting stressed on both sides, and he says, I am going to take every thought captive. And then he just starts declaring things. And as he starts declaring things, he's rewiring his brain. 
to get the emotional stress and worry of his life. I mean, this guy was getting beat up. He was getting uh, imprisoned. He was, um, uh, rocks were thrown at him. He was gonna be executed by rocks. He was under threat of arrest to go to Rome, to be crucified or beheaded. I mean, this is this guy's life. You talk about stress. Let's get my stress resume compared to Paul's stress resume, and it ain't even close. And he's saying, I'm gonna take these thoughts captive. I'm gonna rewire my brain. I had an opportunity to practice this about, I don't know, seven or eight years ago. I had a, a little mole go sideways here in my arm. And I went to the doctor and said, hey, this isn't looking quite right. He goes, ah, it'll be nothing. <laughs> Whenever a doctor says, ah, it'll be nothing, I don't respect doctors. But then I saw it grow and I thought, went back to the doctor, I think it's growing. Yeah, it's fine, you'll, you'll be good, you know. Missed nothing. Went back a third time. So my stress level's getting higher. I've got a family with some, you know, skin cancer history and so I just wanna be on top of a couple things. And, and the third time he says, eh, it's probably nothing, but let's take a biopsy. Takes it, two days later, he calls and says, you have melanoma which is the mother of all skin cancers, right? So I thought, okay, my anxiety went from a two or three immediately to a seven. I looked online, melanoma, it went to an 1100 out of 10. And all the thoughts, I'm dead, I'm dead, I'm dead, <laughs> right? They just start pouring in. And, uh, and I had to battle this stuff because your brain's looking for threats. Now you have a diagnosed threat. Some of you are dealing with this right now. Some of you have gone through this in the past. This is what your brain does. Now there's a real threat, a real diagnosed threat, and what do you do, right? So I had to practice this stuff. This, this became more than a sermon. It became something I have to live because your head starts thinking weird things, especially at night, right? Maybe my wife's gonna have to bury her husband. Maybe my kids who are younger at the time are not gonna you know, be raised with their dad. These are the things that start popping up and you gotta wrestle with that, right? And so I had to start kind of installing different thoughts. And one of the thoughts was not that I'm gonna be okay. I never at once thought I'm gonna be okay because maybe I wouldn't be okay. I don't wanna to lie to myself. Lying to yourself is of no, valuable. You can, uh, no value. You can put happy thoughts in your brain, fantastic. But if the next, doc, next doctor visit isn't so good, then what have you done? Now you've just discouraged yourself. So I don't think we need to lie to ourselves with positive, happy thinking. But what I did was try to install every single day during this you know, first diagnosis and then treatment, try to install every single day the good things, right? What did Jesus say? If your eye, if your focus is good, your life will be filled with light. Good doesn't mean all positive, all happy all the time because sometimes life isn't all positive, all happy all the time. So to be able to say, listen, I don't know if I'm gonna be okay or not, but I know right now I feel okay. Right now, this very moment I feel okay. Right now I feel great. Right now, I've got this wonderful wife that I can enjoy right here, right now, today. I've got these incredible kids. I've got this job I love. I'm going to live, like really live today. And so that smile on my face is real, and that day is real, even though there's these nagging worries swirling in my head. Now, fortunately, they caught it early. There was treatment, and I've been in the clear for several years. I gotta go for a checkup once a year. Some of you guys are still in that zone with your own diagnosis and your own health problems. One year later, there was a spot in my eye, and if you have melanoma and a spot in your dumb green eyes, it's tough. And again, they dealt with it, moved on, right? But it's how we deal with the stresses. It's how we deal with these worries that mean everything. And one of the thoughts I put in my brain back then and still now is, Treadway, why traumatize yourself over something that hasn't happened yet? 
That's what worry is. Worry is traumatizing ourselves over something that hasn't happened yet. And in our brain, we're thinking, okay, what's the worst that could happen to my job? What's the worst that can happen with our finances? What terrible things could my kids do? Is my marriage gonna last? I mean, all these worries, worries, worries. And some of those are legitimate, right? You gotta scan the world for threats for sure. But when we invest in that worry, now we are traumatizing ourselves over something that hasn't even happened. These bad thoughts that come in from the 95% of our brain that's, uh, that's, that's subconscious, they're like rats that just pop up out of nowhere. This is rat season, right? This is rat season, this is rattlesnake season in Temecula, California. Spiders are coming next. Online people, it's just the way it is. I don't know you ne- your neck of the woods. But for us, rats are coming out right now. Mice and rats, it's just the season. And we have chickens in our backyard. Rats love chicken food. They love chicken eggs, they love any- anything chicken, right? So we've got chickens out there and the rats come out and it's a battle. I went out with my, my, uh, you know, my, my phone and my flashlight and I'm gonna find these suckers. And, and so you, know, you go out behind the thing and you're just like, how many of them are out, are out there? And I put the flashlight on them and they all look at me with their demon eyes and then they scurry, right? I go back in the house to give a report. Jenny, there's like 12 of them out there. And it's game on. It's, they're gonna die. It is me versus those rats and they're gonna die. Now, if you're, a, if you're a rat lover, let me know, because as I get them, they're going to your house. But I'm getting them. They will not make it. I am getting them. Now, that involves a lot of work. It involves a lot of effort. But rats are like these bad thoughts. They just pop up, right? And these guys are boogers. They are persistent, and they are pesky, and a lot of them show up at night, right? And these are the things that swirl around in our brain. Can I pay our bills? What if I lose my job? What if we lose everything? What if I don't have enough money? What if we can't do well in retirement? What will my mother think? What will the neighbors think? What will my friends think of me? Well, I say something stupid. What if my kids get hurt? What if they rebel? What if they ruin their lives? What if they take drugs? What if you know, my marriage falls apart? What if when I get married, my uh, you know, husband or wife is a total jerk? What if, what if, what if, what if, and our brains just swirl with these rat-like thoughts that just pop up, right? And they swirl around in our brain. And there's some things that we can do to grab a hold of those, as the Apostle Paul said, we're going to take these thoughts captive. They will not win, they will not survive. It takes that kind of determination. This is all backed not only by Jesus, but by science, you ready? Identify the worry. What are the rats swarming your brain? I know that's a pleasant analogy, but what are the rats of negative thoughts swarming your brain? What are you worried about right now? Just whisper to yourself, what are you worried about right now? What are the rats swirling around your brain? Your family, your finances, what people think of you, whatever. Identify that and own it. Don't just, oh, I I can't worry about it. Don't forget, own it. I mean, like stare those rats in their demon eyes. What am I worried about? Own it. Look at them back and say, listen, I'm gonna trap you and I'm gonna get you. You will not win. And I'm, I'm, I'm not joking around. I'm, this, is, this is cognitive therapy, by the way. Jesus talks about, you know, really honing our minds into the good. The Apostle Paul says, I'm gonna take these thoughts captive. It's cognitive therapy. So for those of you who are therapists, uh, live or online, you, you know this, this is your everyday life. You're trying to get people to identify their negative thoughts, seize those negative thoughts, kill those negative thoughts and replace them with something better, with something that is more positive. Replace the worry. Identify the worry, trap the worry, replace the worry. Replace the worry. 3.46 a.m. when I woke up a couple of nights ago, this random negative thought was just piercing my brain from my subconscious. I did count through it, trying to replace it. 
a more spiritual thing for your pastor to have done would have been to pray through it. And this is something that's also in scripture. Sometimes when that negative thought just hits, pray, pray, pray. Someone I love deeply uh, called having an anxiety problem. And this is what we talked this person through. Just pray, pray. I know you're having trouble breathing right now, but pray. I know these rats of negative thoughts are all in your brain right now, just pray. Thank God right now for every single thing you're thankful for. If you get overwhelmed by worry and anxiety and the stresses of life, there's not a better thing you can do than just pray right through it. And I know that sounds cliche, and it's not. If you wake up in the middle of the night with negative thoughts, pray, God, I am thankful for this, I'm thankful for this. I thank you for your presence, I thank you for your goodness. Thank you that you never leave me. Thank you for my amazing church. Thank you for my family. Thank you for my friends. And just thank you for the roof over my head. Thank you for the food. And just thank yourself to sleep. And that is the most beautiful thing you could do is thank yourself to sleep. And just know as you are praying and getting yourself centered and getting your worry kind of centered and your anxieties kind of centered, you pray yourself to sleep, just know that God is over your bed like a loving heavenly father and he just wants you to relax and he wants you to go to sleep praying to him, just thanking him for the things that you have in your life. And if we do that over and over and over again, not just in the middle of the night, but even as a part of our day, just thank God, thank God, you are good, you are kind, you are with me, you never leave me. I've got support around me, I've got my friends, I've got my family, God, there's so much to be thankful for. You will start seeing your brain change and heal from the stresses and anxieties and worries of life. It boils down to simply living in the present. Living in the present. Living in this very moment. Living with the understanding that I am not going to relive trauma that has already passed, and I am not gonna live in trauma that hasn't come. I'm not gonna live in the past that is gone. The only evidence of the past is this brain's memories. That's it. It's gone. I'm not gonna live in the trauma that hasn't come yet. I'm not gonna invent scenarios to be anxious about. God, would you give me the strength to live in the present right here and right now? Someone who is very wise in this area said this, now is all there ever is. Now, right now, is all there ever is. The past is just memory and the future is just anticipation. So cherish now, take pleasure in now. Enjoy now. Live only in now. The past is just memory. Live only in now. The future is just anticipation. They matter, but really live now. As the band comes up, uh, we're gonna have, sing one final song that just nails this subject, but I also wanna read to you a text from a good buddy of mine. His name is Juno, and uh, he's a pastor friend in Orange County, and I uh, love this guy. His life has had some tragedy. About 10 years ago, he lost his wife, Bonnie. Uh, he treasured Bonnie. They had a teenage daughter at the time. And so he's been living with the daily weight of the grief of losing his cherished Bonnie. And he sent me this text on Friday, and it so perfectly nails this sermon. It so perfectly nails this sermon, I went and redid the sermon based on the text, right? So. This guy is living out what we're talking about in the most powerful and profound way I can imagine. 
Listen to how he handles both the stressful things of life, his relationship with God, and living in the now. Here's his text. Hey, buddy. Today would have been my 33rd anniversary. I'll not ignore my loss. I'll try to watch our wedding video before I go to bed tonight. I'll be reminded of what was, but I won't worship the past. While life is indeed different, it is still good. I'll try to focus on God's goodness and faithfulness, that I've been blessed by many incredible friends. I've been gifted with a great relationship with my daughter, with my son-in-law, and now a precious grandson. I love what I do in church, and I'm blessed to live another day. Isn't that cool? That's everything we talked about. It's this man who has lived with some tragedy, some deep tragedy and some deep loss, who understands what it's like to hold the past but not be mastered by it. What it's like to think about the future but not be enslaved by it. To be able to live right here, right now in the pleasure of God's love for him. Proven by the gift of Jesus Christ who gave his very life for us to show us how loved we are. And then to know that God is right here with him in every moment so we can enjoy today. 